This is Song. And this is Sarah. This is Epping Ethical, where we try to make sense of all the choices facing consumers every day. So I guess, I mean, transitioning to like the topic du jour and thinking about policy, um, but in a, in a more narrow way than just like policy period. But um, as we're kind of talking about uh, decriminalizing drugs, um, both, you know, cannabis and, uh, and, and otherwise, um, I feel like, you know, I think it's worth kind of setting the scene in a lot of ways. So like, A, talking about criminal law and like what what it's for, right, period. And why are we even talking about um, criminalizing and, and then now again, decriminalizing drugs, right? So criminal law, it's, it's right, something to... Um, it's something to, I guess, like prevent and to keep people accountable from doing things that are harmful to others, right? And, you know, the purpose of criminal law is to like deter, deter crimes, deter people from harming others, right? It's for um, retribution. It's making sure that, you know, people who do harm others are kept accountable. Um, and it's also supposed to be for like rehabilitation and, and you know, restoration to, to make the victim of a crime like whole again. And when you think about what the purpose of criminal law is, you're, I don't know, for me, I'm like, so, so, so drugs, um, drugs in and of themselves, right? Like, uh, you know, psychoactive narcotics, like it's just not, it in and of itself isn't the thing that like harms other people, right? Um, taking drugs, using drugs is like not a thing that in itself um, harms other people in in the way, in the same way that other um, other crimes do, right? So when, you know, like, um, yeah, theft or like embezzlement, right? Like, you know, murder, like things that explicitly harm other people. And I think for me, it's interesting because it's actually the, the, the criminalization of certain acts that actually made those things become more harmful to, to others and, um, and to certain communities, et cetera, et cetera. And so I, you know, as we're, you know, thinking about drug policy and the decriminalization, I thought it's, it's also kind of interesting to think about think about policy as like a frame and not necessarily like, you know, it's, everyone's going to have a different policy position on, um, on different issues. Right. And, but sometimes there is sort of a through line. And, you know, when I think about drug policy and when I think about decriminalization, for me, it also brings up other things like uh, the criminalization of sex work, um, even like the criminalization of abortion, right. Things that, are somewhat like arbitrarily made into crimes in a way to um, to control and oppress rather than because the things in and of themselves are are harmful to others, right? And it's with it's in that criminalization that actually causes the harm. Um, and so, yeah, I just I just like wanted to kind of yeah flag that framing because um, so going back to, for example, 
you know, like drugs, let's say drug sex work and, and abortion, right? By criminalizing things, um, like if you look at, you know, statistics, and if you look at sort of the history, criminalizing things doesn't necessarily make those things um, less, less common, right? Like, the same number of, you know, X, Y, Z um, tend to happen whether or not they're criminalized. Um, the thing that does happen is that uh, the harms become significantly higher. So for example, and, and this doesn't go, I mean, it, this doesn't, for example, this is different than um, first criminalizing drugs and then decriminalizing, and then that increases the use, right? Like that's that's a whole different conversation because then it's like, um, you know, then you're bringing in like commercialization and you're bringing in, you know, there's like the whole business layer aspect of it, which I'm sure we'll start talking about. Um, but just like purely criminalizing something doesn't make, doesn't necessarily make it go down for the, the kinds of like the uh, buckets of things that, that we're talking about. But, but, you know, kind of going back to drugs, it, so, um, yeah, when drugs were made into crimes, like rather than the usage going down, it just made overdoses go up, right? And so it has this almost like negative correlation um, between harm and criminalization, which is like the complete opposite of the actual objectives of criminal law, right? And so same thing with sex work. You make it illegal and it actually ends up making um, abuse and violence much more prevalent in the industry by making it criminal, not the other way around. And so I think it's just worth thinking about things in, in a frame and like, um, because sometimes it is really hard to, to figure out how, where you stand on, on, you know, every single issue. But I think thinking about things from like a harm reduction standpoint is like a good starting point. Um, no matter what what you're looking at, whether it's healthcare or whether it's you know how you feel about drug decriminalization or legalization or you know whatever it is, and so um, I just wanted to throw that out there, <laughs> kick this off. Um, um, no, that's that's such a good start, and it reminded me of um, one of one of my favorite podcasts, Pantsuit Politics, a few weeks ago, um, aired a conversation that one of the hosts had. Um, with with a friend about abortion rights. And I guess it's a conversation that they as friends have been having for a very long time and are on very different sides. But something that they sort of highlighted very early on in their friendship when having this conversation was, are we talking about policy or are we talking about morality and values and kind of, and like, where is the overlap? Um, and I think that this is one of those spaces um, when you're talking about, especially at this stage, it's it's decriminalization, right? We don't really see a future where drug use of any type um, of what are now currently, quote, like illicit drugs being um, being stricter or, or becoming more illicit or more um, more or there's like more laws restricting their use. We're seeing the other direction, kind of um, the the Oregon example of kind of decriminalizing all use of all illicit drugs. Um, so it's yeah, it's you know you can have moral and value views on things, and that's that's really important. And of course, those influence how you think about policy. But but sometimes you're really just talking about policy, right? And like what is actually effective, and that's very clearly driven um, the the decriminalization on so many levels, right, is is acknowledging the fact that 
the the criminalization of um of drugs has always had very racist motives and white Americans use various drugs just as much as um, Americans of color um, kind of, you know, it depends on the drug and there's a lot of different stats around that, but it's really the, the acknowledgement of like the racist history and the fact that the policies aren't working. Um, and, and honestly, all of the time and money spent um on on like fighting with um the the use and distribution of illicit drugs on kind of the illegal side um it's costly and is you know is there literally just like a better way like can we start from scratch and say like is there a better way to to manage this and it's interesting to see yeah the states that are that are doing that and there's just so much wrapped up in in those decisions and the implementation um and then of course you know an individual as potentially a consumer within that system, um, how they might be connected to it. Right. Um, you touched briefly on um, on like the the history of why drugs became illegal in the first place. Um, but I mean, for all of time, for as you know, long as you know, the ancient Egyptians discovered opium um, and started using, you know, like. I guess, planted poppy seeds and discovered opium, like people have been using narcotics for, um, you know, for, to relieve pain and, um, and you know, whatnot um, recreationally. And it's, it's only because when we're thinking about like the war on drugs and um, why certain substances started to become illegal at certain periods in our history, um, specifically, I guess, U.S. history, it like it correlates to a certain population that was viewed as a threat to um, through the people in power at the time. So, you know, the first anti-opium lo- uh, laws of the 1800s had to had to do with, you know, Chinese immigrants who were in um, coming to California to help build like the intercontinental railroads um, and sort of in the same way that we sort of villainize and otherize um, immigrants who come and are a part of our workforce today, like people felt threatened by um, by this like new, new I guess, cheap labor force, right? And so then they used um, anti-opium, lo- anti-opium laws um, as a means of, uh, of sort of like controlling and, and oppressing Chinese immigrants. And then, you know, same thing with like anti-cocaine laws um, directed at black men, right, um, in the South. And then, you know, um, anti-marijuana laws that were a result of Mexicans coming to the U.S. during the uh, Mexican Revolution, right? They're all very like targeted in specific moments in time, Um to sort of otherize and criminalize a certain uh, subset of um, of the population, and I also wanted to kind of yeah, so so that as background um, into why things became illegal and criminalized in the first place as a means of like control essentially, um, and then I, I wanted to also you know kind of touch on your point about. Um, like the the policy, are we talking about policy here or are we talking about 
morality and values-based um, thoughts here. And the, they're two completely different things. Um, and like the way that I think about that kind of dichotomy is morality, what, whatever your views are on morality and your values, like, sure, that drives the, the intent behind, um, behind what you support as policy, but policies as they are formed, like that should really be um, not, yeah, I, I feel like that should be based on the impact and not necessarily on the intent, right? Um, because the, because that's that's what government does. The government isn't here to be like the moral police. The government here is is here to as a framework, right, for um, for our society to to work and to thrive together. And it's really like the impact piece that I think um, is what like what, what is what policy aligns with um, and, and morality and values is, is it, it has more of like an intent kind of a feel to, to me. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. And I think that that um, like really well sort of ties into like, okay, well, what does the the market look like today? And how do you make choices based on, you know, your own values or your own um, sort of perspective on kind of what the moral direction should be, um, and also what the policies are that exist and like how you might interact with them. Um, I think that it's, you know, if, if you want to be a thoughtful consumer, um, and, and and we're really going to focus on the consumption of cannabis because it is the most widely legal available, um, drug at this point in the U S, um, and certainly kind of is the most interesting market, but, but yeah, if you want to be this sort of ethical consumer, um, if you can even call it that, then then you are going to bring all those things into it, right? And and knowing that history is actually a big part of it. You know, if you're thinking about morality and your values on this, if you want to be a consumer today in 2020, you need to look back at the history and say, like, who has been harmed by um, by these policies? And when um, when I was doing a bit of research for um, this episode, I found a 2019 Quartz article um, called How to Be a Conscious Consumer of Cannabis. Um, it is very U.S. focused, and I'll link to it in the um, show notes, but um, that really is what their focus was on, right? Um, I'll, I'll probably talk here in a little bit about things like um, like the organic you know, um, components of, of cannabis or um, the the labor rights connection, kind of what's happening in the U.S., but I really appreciated that their point was like, you know, the first step is just like to look back and question, is this, you know, it, it's obviously state by state, but like, is the state that you live in and the policies that are now decriminalizing this, have they also addressed the disenfranchised population who, you know, missed out on active years of work because they were in jail for crimes associated with this substance? Um, are there active either by the government or nonprofit programs that are supporting returned citizens and accessing things like education and economic opportunities? Um, so it's really just kind of taking a step back and looking it, it is very micro. It might be your city, it might be your county, it might be your state, but saying like what is what is like the ecosystem surrounding um, this this substance, um, especially now that it that it is legal and it is um, available through 
um, legal means. And, um, you know, and now, like, like you said, at the very beginning, now it's, it is a market. Like there are large, this is big business um, in the U S not so much because it's not federally legal, but certainly in Canada, you're starting to get like pretty significant investors participating in this market. So this is no longer kind of a, a niche small business thing. You're going to see a lot of changes um, within the market and kind of corporate structures and how they're managed. Um, so it's at least this is just like a it's time to like be very aware of the substances that that you're consuming um, and kind of the broader impacts of them. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, uh, you know, totally agree with like the whole kind of ecosystem. Um, so not just thinking about, okay, so it's been decriminalized and now, um, you know, they're, they're, it, it's, cha- it's like totally transformed, I guess, um, yeah, it, it's transformed a, a lot of different things, right? So you mentioned um, like people now being able to um, like a once disenfranchised population, um, like how are we going to ensure that they are able to, to now like thrive again um, in the society and to give them back, right, what we've taken from them. Um, and I think it's it's easy to think about um cannabis and cannabis law just like as its own thing. Um, but I mean, the, the persistent like the, the thing though, is that it's not something that kind of exists in a silo, right? The, um, the things that we deal with today around, um, like the, the racist, um, yeah, all, all of this sort of like uh, big overarching kind of racist structures in our society, like those things haven't been dismantled just because we dis- uh, decriminalized marijuana, right? Like, and so, you know, we look back on the, the biggest, I guess, evidence that we have or uh, the longest standing evidence that we have of, of you know, the impacts of decriminalization um, in the U.S., it's like it doesn't go back very far. It's just, you know, 2012 when um, Colorado and Washington first decriminalized. But despite, you know, there are it, it's too soon to tell. Right. It's too soon to say just how positive or negative the impacts are, I think. And, and people have arguments on both sides about, you know, you know, about the fact that the criminal justice system is now a little bit more fair, or it, you know, there have been less arrests, or um, that there have been, you know, some tax revenue that can now be um, put towards things like paying for health insurance for the under underinsured or, or what have you. Um, but on the flip side, right, there are numbers that show that African Americans. Um, in states like Colorado, are still being arrested on charges on marijuana charges that are at the twi- at twice the rate of of white folks, right? So, like the very core systemic things have not changed, um, and you know when you're thinking about policy, like everything goes hand in hand. It, it's one thing is not going to be the end all. Um, you have to attack problems from so many different angles. And um, when we're talking about laws around um, decriminalization or legalization of drugs, I think it's really important to also think about kind of um, the way that 
that it touches on so many different other other things. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And um, this probably isn't the direction that you were thinking, but just because I have um, a background in agriculture, I was really interested in because cannabis is not federally legal, what is the process or what certifications are out there for quote organic cannabis is that is there demand for that is that even a really like an active thing in the market and what i found was actually really interesting so one like if that is something you're interested in if you want to be a cannabis consumer and you are interested in um kind of a, a certification that is approximately equivalent to organic standards um the oldest organization that's doing it is called the clean green certified um organization and they they basically have a list of producers. So if that's something you're interested in, that is something that you can look up. Um, but what for me was really key about that organization and some of the other um, initiatives and coalitions that are building around kind of the, the industry and ensuring that it is more sustainable um, in a lot of ways is the inclusion of things like labor rights. So like minimum wage, um, healthy working conditions, and the um, the connection that those businesses have to their communities, right? Like if you're in a community where there is this high percentage of the population that was disenfranchised because of old laws, how is the current um, the how is the current cannabis market sort of bringing those people into it? Um, and those are questions that seem to be on. Um, on the minds, on the sort of policy statements by a lot of the coalitions that are building around kind of more, you know, I'll just call it sustainable cannabis. Um, and I mean, and, and for me, that's always been a key part of sustainability. Like sustainability is not for the sake of the environment, although there are definitely like negative impacts of the environment if you use too many pesticides and don't grow things organically. Um, but really like who are the people that are involved and how are they being treated, whether that's your workers, the community who might be directly impacted by um, the agricultural growth of a product, or in this case, the broader community who was previously negatively impacted by policies associated with the substance. Right. And that's the beauty of, of bringing things out of like the, you know, um, like a criminal justice framework and, thinking about it as industry, right? And that's, that's the beauty, that's the beauty of, um, of the, that's the beauty and the power of uh, having things be done under civil law and, and not the criminal justice system, for sure. Um, just, I just wanted to um, add like one, yeah, I guess another sort of intersection with other laws that I, um, wanted to encourage folks to also pay attention to and, you know, advocate for or whatnot is um, the connection uh, between like drug laws and immigration law. Um, and so, uh, you know, just to also kind of paint a picture of, of and then like rather than just talking about policy and having this kind of, um, you know, uh, what's it called, like a high level talk about what it means that people and communities are, you know, yeah, that are, they are negatively impacted by um, criminalization of drugs. But um, I just wanted to give like 
an anecdote, a story of, um, you know, back when I was a lawyer and um, I was doing some immigrant defense work, um, one of my first clients was this man who was a green card holder. Um, He was a permanent resident in the United States. He had been here for more than 30 years, ever since he was a child. Um, And he was in his 40s. And when we first met, he had been in immigrant detention for uh, for six months. And, you know, you hear all of these stories when we're talking about immigration policy and how, like, criminal immigrants who commit crimes should be sent to, you know, detention and, you know, deported. And, I mean, just to give you an idea of, like, what, quote unquote, under the law warranted my client being sent to basically prison. That's what immigration detention is. It's essentially just you're, you're, you know, getting locked up, but without right to counsel, without with, you know, you don't, you have no rights. Right. Um, And it's a really kind of a, it's an awful system. Um, And he was separated from his family and he was on his way to be like deported back to a country that he hadn't been to since he was, you know, like seven years old. Um, But yeah, the, the thing that landed him there eventually was a string of um, small like citations since he, he was a teenager. Like he jumped a turnstile. He, you know, pumped some lotion at a drugstore. Um, and then finally, like he was caught smoking weed with his buddies in the park. And that and that was and, and those like that combination of things is what sent him to immigration detention indefinitely until um, we were able to, to, you know, kind of like advocate and and get him out. Um, But yeah, those are like the very real impacts of draconian law that have no basis um, in the actual principles of, of, of criminal law, right? And are really used, right, again, to control a subset of the population, very much like my then client, who um, was like a poor man of color um, at the time. And so, yeah, I just, I, I I think, you know, going back to Sarah's point about like the whole like morality and values, um, you know, drive that people have towards their feelings towards something like think when you're thinking about um, even immigration law and, you know, I know that the conversation these days is just around like family separation and um, children in cages, but like, I mean, this is, this is the same thing. It was exactly the same thing, right? Like it's family separation for my client. It was, you know, him being locked up in a cage because he like smoked weed in the park. Um, and is that really fair? Is that really moral? Um, is that the kind of is that the kind of morality that we want to live under, right? And so, um, yeah, I, I think it's such a interesting kind of jumping off point to think about um, all of these other kind of policies and um, and yeah and, and things. Yeah, I think that 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 just sort of brought back to me um, something that 
we had been texting about this week. And I think that this, instead of maybe talking about this once, we'll kind of talk about this multiple times, kind of in connection with um, the topics that we've chosen. Um, but there, there was this really good article um, this last week called The Twilight of the Ethical Consumer. And it was written by um, a reporter who had like a pretty famous piece a number of years ago, kind of exposing a lot of the problems within the fast fashion industry, and then went on to have, but um, uh, was kind of notable within the kind of ethical fashion space. And basically, the the article, which if the, if you're interested, I highly recommend reading the whole thing. But what she really focuses on is that you know, 20 years of being like an individual consumer making these individual choices. Like I'm going to buy, you know, the better jeans or the better coffee, um, which is all, you know, can all be important. She just had a moment during um, the last six months realizing how it, it wasn't those little, like those little choices that she made didn't like save the smallholder farmers or the small businesses or the people working at grocery stores when the realities of the pandemic hit and there were people either laid off or, um, you know, people working at grocery stores had to continue to go back and they were put at risk. And so for her, it was really just a rethinking of where do you put your effort in? And I think that for me, it's, it's not, um, I think there's some things that I might, might, I might disagree with her, but I do like the lens of, you know, there's, there are small things that you can do. And if, if, if it is really important to you to be like an ethical consumer on kind of an individual decision basis, like do it, you know, like do the research, um, make those decisions. I know songs that like you and I try to do that with a lot of decisions, but we also don't want to give ourselves decision fatigue. So, um, you know, it's, it's really like a, like a pay attention to what's important and put your effort there. And I think that I was really excited to talk about this topic because, um, yeah, because like I mentioned earlier, like there's not like a right decision. There's not like a, you, even if you want to be a consumer of cannabis, like you shouldn't because the system is so, you know, is, is so problematic or, or you definitely should, right? Like it has these positive health benefits or just do it because it's fun. Like whatever, there's, you know, there's no like one right answer, um, but there's also a system that has really hurt people. And so if you are going to participate in um, in the economy and, and I like to think about it as like just being a good like citizen, right? Like being an active participant, um, then, then pay attention, right? Like listen to the stories of like people like your client and sort of hear how the policies and the laws worked together against that person and sort of say, okay, I, how can my consumption connect to policy change? Um, and I think that there's, there's a lot of opportunity. And, and for me, you know, you, you've said this a number of times, but I think it's such a good refrain to repeat, like, how are we doing on, um, on harm reduction? Right. Like, how can we make things less harmful to to our society, to our communities um, and sort of having that be having that be a North Star in when you're talking about sectors or um, structures that that it's really hard to sort of figure out the right way to fix it. But you kind of know that it needs to be fixed. Thank you for listening to Effing Ethical. 
check us out on Instagram at F-I-N-G ethical and on our website at songandsarah.com. We'd love to hear from you. What industries or systems do you have questions about? How are you making ethical decisions in everyday life? 2020 is hard and we would love to hear about how it's going for you. Thanks.